All right, welcome back to another episode of Paint of Profits, and I'm here with my friend Tim Jordan, who is a serial entrepreneur, bought three companies by the time he was 24, and we're going to share a little bit more about his story on what it takes to actually run and grow a business, all the pain and turmoil that he's gone through, what he's learned, and impart some of that wisdom on you guys. Tim, welcome, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, so you are unique in the sense that you bought three companies by the time you were 24. Were you always an entrepreneur and did you, what kind of jobs did you have? And at what point did you realize that like, Hey, I just can't work for anybody else. I got to go do my own thing. Yeah. There was a couple of points in my life. As far as the jobs I had before being an entrepreneur, um, I, I got a job selling cars on my 18th birthday and, um, I was working at Best Buy and this, this guy tried to hire me on the car lot when I was like 17. He said, come and see me when I'm eight, when you're 18. And, um, I did it and it was awesome. Started making 60, 70 grand a year while I was in high school and it taught me, I was an introvert. It like fully pulled me out of my shell (laughs) and then like showed me this whole different side to the world where I could influence my own wealth so much more than, than a traditional nine to five job. Along the way, there was a couple people. There's this uh, high school teacher that I never really had any interaction with until like his last day of class, he pulled me aside and said, Hey, you don't have to work for anyone else if you don't want to. You have that type of capability. And that always like stuck wow. in my head. So then I had a cool guy in the car lot. Um, he was one of those he transitioned from wealthy to not wealthy, wealthy to you know, he was in this ugly cycle, unfortunately. But he put a I think like a lot of us, a copy of Rich Dad Poor Dad in my hand when I was like eighteen when I was eighteen years old and it kind of changed my life. So that's incredible. So uh, what class was that where the teacher said? It was a high school business class. It was the only business class at my high school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I, I enjoyed it, but I had no real interaction with this teacher. And literally the last day of class, he sought me out and told me that. And it kind of changed my perspective. It was a really awesome thing. Did, and so you were making 60, 70K at that point. So he probably knew like, okay, this kid's just cut from a little bit different cloth. I imagine, yeah. Do you think it's a good idea for people who want to get into entrepreneurship to have some sort of stint in sales? I completely uh, think that 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 is probably the best simulation you can have. (laughs) Um, You know, commission sales is, it's so similar to entrepreneurship. The ups and the downs and the uncertainty, but then the un, you know, the limitless upside potential of it also. Well, yeah, when you first start the business, you're generally the first salesperson, right? Right. So you're getting out there trying to figure out the processes and the systems. And if you're uncomfortable doing that, man, it is a long, hard road. For sure. There are similarities, for sure. But there's the whole other nuance of like employees, back-end finance. And you said you already had that guy who you worked on the car lot with, right? And he was up again, down again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, probably knew better. Yeah, right. So at, at what point did you know that I, you know, hey... I'm done working for other people and I want to go buy a business. What was that? Yes. We actually owned a business at that point. Um, We had, we were, I was working on the car lot getting, I was kind of done with it. I've been at it four years. It was great money, but yeah, I was done with it. It's a grind. It's a real grind. (laughs) Um, So I, I tried to sell a car to a guy who um, I didn't end up being successful at, but he offered me a job. And I thought it was a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Turns out I typed the, the 
organization that he worked for his name into Google and it was a Fortune 500 that I'd never heard of. And it took about nine months, but he ended up hiring me off the car lot into a bachelor uh, need required position 18 months before I got my bachelor's degree. Gave me a truck, flexible schedule, let me finish out my degree. So, but in that nine month period, we had been, Danielle and I had been talking about buying a business. Well, shoot, if our, our window tinting company didn't come around, get the deal done and close it in between the time of us talking about it and me getting that job. So it kind of happened side by side um, for, for me, which was interesting, um, which was great. My wife operated the business for a few years while I was working corporate. And then I saw the guy that hired me in the corporate world get reorged out. I mean, he just got washed out in a reorg and he was awesome. Like we were crushing it. And to see him get washed out in a reorg, he was way better than I was at what we were doing. Yeah. It just, it killed me on the bureaucracy of, of uh, working for a large company, working for anyone else. Then a big catalyst for me was my wife moved for me once. She moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Fort Collins, Colorado. And she said, I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I love you and we can make it right here. And, um, Working for other people, oftentimes there is that relocation. I was in a situation where I had to be re relocated if I wanted to ascend. And it was a it was an easy out for me. I'd already seen this stuff that I didn't like in the bureaucracy right. of a Fortune 500. And then she just said, hey, we have this other business. Let's grow over here and let's just make our life together and enjoy the the – you know, freedoms that come with working that, that we've seen our parents, you know, enjoy working for themselves. So that, that was a moment for, for me, for sure. So how, how young were you guys when you got married? Uh, I was 20. Danielle just turned 21. We, Cause yeah, every time you talk about her, you're like, dude, she's a badass. Like, oh, yeah. When it comes to numbers back in managing the business stuff, like, Oh, she's know, amazing. She's amazing at yeah. it. And that's, that can be rare. It's very special when you guys have that. Yeah. I know for me personally, uh, it, over the years, it, it's actually been challenging for Casey and I, and we haven't actually worked together too much. Mm -hmm. Now that we're older, more mature, so it's very easy for us to work together. Right. Is there any, like, special secret sauce that you guys have in your relationship to – two-part question. Make sure it doesn't muddy the waters of your personal life. Yeah. And keep those things separate, but also work together peacefully and well, you know? Yeah, you know, there are – probably two principles that we, because we've worked together for 15 years yeah, now. Impressive. Um, and it's better now than it's ever been. Um, but there's two principles that really help us keep it separate, both in, in mainly in that our marriage is our marriage and that's most important here. Yes. And, but we have to work together outside of work. So when we're at home, we don't talk about business unless it's on a scheduled meeting. It's um, super crucial for us. We don't one-off comment about, goods or bads, unless we're just kind of talking like husband, wife, but right. we're not making business decisions. We're not analyzing things unless there's a scheduled meeting. Now at the office, that's a different story. We have a working relationship at the office the same way that any other, I think, or that coworkers do, right. but that's really crucial for us to not allow that business to bleed into the home time. Dude, I got to get, how do you manage that? Like I have a hard time cause I'm, I feel like I'm just always on. Yeah. I, um, th there's a couple of different ways. Now it's a muscle for me when I walk in the house. Yeah. Um, I'm either in the office. If I'm in the office, I'm working. If I'm out of the office, I'm not working. But that, I just have to be intentionally 
thinking about it and working on it. Sometimes you have to pray about it a yeah. little bit, you know, that because you can't always control that yeah. situation. So, but, and then we agreed together. I think that was really crucial. Of what, This was very early on. We were kind of like marital fights were arising because of issues at work or something right. along those lines. And we just came together and said, we can't do this. When we're at home, we have to be at home 100%. I love that. I mean, just for our audience to unpack that, I think that's super important advice and wisdom to keep it separate. And if you don't prioritize it, it ain't going to happen. Right. You're married to her first, right? Right. So don't forget to date. Don't forget to prioritize those things. Do you guys do date nights regularly? Of course. Yep. Um, Have to. I think that's, that's super crucial. And like you said, you... We are married first. Like right. business is business. That's that's important, but it's nowhere pales in comparison to a healthy relationship with your wife. Yeah, and I know a ton of entrepreneurs who get super successful and then they get divorced or whatever it may be. And for me, man, that was always one of my biggest fears Agreed. about going all in. Is if I leave the person who supported me from the beginning in the dust, like it, none of it's worth it. To I know. Me. I I feel I don't talk much about it because it's it's kind of negative. I've seen. Quite a few people, quite a few mentors, like maybe they're still married, maybe they're not, but they sure as heck don't have positive relationships with their children. They don't have as positive relationships with their wife as they could because they spent from 20 to 55 building whatever they have now, which they have something amazing, but it's it wasn't worth it to me. Empty castle. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks. It probably limits, I'll be honest with you, I think it's limited our upside wealth potential probably, um, at least early in our lives. But the relationship I have with my daughter, the super positive relationship I have with my wife after working together for 15 years, it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I will give up. That's not, I guess, not wealth. I guess wealth potential. It's redefine what wealth is, right? Sure. You give up the point. money potential, right? Yep. But. One day you're going to be laying on your deathbed looking back at your life and you're not going to say, man, I'm really glad I put in that extra 70 that week. Right. I didn't go on vacation or hang with my kid or watch her grow up or go to her. She's starting to play sports, right? Yep, yep. Go to her swim meet or whatever it may be. For sure. Right? So, yeah, it's just not worth it. Completely agree. So you, you the um, tinting business was the first business. Yep. Did you buy that business? We we bought it. So it was a commercial residential window tinting business based out of Golden, Colorado. Okay. Um, we were 21, no real, I mean, we just had the money that we earned and granted it was good money for our age, but there was no wealth injection whatsoever. (laughs) So, um, uh, it was cheap, which is one (laughs) benefit of it. We saw great potential. Um, there was a few gaps that in the industry that fit super well for us. So, um, we bought that on the back of a, awesome banker um who's still my banker today he was very young at the time um he walked in his office from day one he said yep if you guys want to want to do an sba loan we'll find a way to make it happen for you so we bought that on the back of his relationship and s uh sba uh 504 loans we've done seven sba loans six or seven sba loans over the years and um yeah, it was 
it was a, it's a hell of a process as a lot of people. <laughs> it's a hell of a process, but man, it's an incredible loan. For sure. Can you talk a little bit about that just so people can understand how the SBA 504 works? Yeah. Yeah. It's invaluable program. It's in, it's uh, there for primarily business acquisition. You can do real estate acquisition, but it's low uh, capital investment. It's when we're are bootstrapping our own business, be okay. it, you know, 50,000 up to, I think the cap at 5 million, um, usually 10% down, um, sometimes working capital coming back. I think three of ours ended up at 0% down um, at the end of the day. The reason that there's a bad um, reputation is typically because of the application process. Don't get me wrong. When you turn in that application, it's three inches thick at the end of the day. But there isn't anything in there that doesn't help you as an entrepreneur create a plan. It's not like they're having you write essays about world history, they're having you lay out your plan for your business and how it's going to be successful and how you're going to deal with the struggles. So I've always found the process, frankly, helpful, tedious at times, but, but helpful at the end of the day. Well, and it's a fully amortized loan, right? You get 25 year full amortization. So that lowers the payment significantly, makes the cash flow work on the business a little bit better and you can roll real estate into it, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, and uh, fees up front are high, which is the other um, uh, bad reputation it has. Rate is crazy low. Always has been, at least relative to to yep. uh, current market rates. Yeah, shoot. Two years ago, you could get like two and a half, two point nine, something like that. I have a real estate uh, five hundred four loan uh, at two eight nine or something. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and basically, like the the bank funds like forty percent of it, and the mm-hmm. SBA funds like sixty percent, if yep. I remember correctly. Yeah. Yep. You can also do acquisition with 7A, which is uh, SBA 7A loan, which is 90% fed-backed. I'm sorry, 80% fed-backed, 10% exposure to the bank, and then you're 10% down. That's another great acquisition tool. They're really similar. The bank just decides which one they want to do. Different amortization schedule on the SBA 7A? Uh, 7A, it floats. So the uh, the SBA underwriter decides what the amortization is based on the the value of the loan. Yeah, that's invaluable. I think... You know, as we're heading into this next phase, largest wealth transfer in history is about to happen, right? right? By 2030, all baby boomers will be over the age of 65. Yep. And I think the stat I saw the other day was 40, no, 57% of them don't have a transition plan right. or an exit plan. So there's a lot of businesses that are just waiting to be snatched up by entrepreneurs who can see the value add opportunity to come in and add tech, process systems, yep. skills. A lot of these businesses have been running for 15, 20, 30 years. And it's just, it's always worked, right? That's just the way we've always done it, Tim. So we just keep doing it that way. So what was the opportunity that you saw the value? I do mentioned that when you first bought your tinting company. Yeah, it was, um, mainly around that industry is, uh, owner operated almost exclusively, um, with typically very little, uh, business acumen. Danielle and I had a significant amount of business acumen, even at that time that we, felt like we could focus on the business side of it and hire good people to execute the operations side of it. And we would be unique in Colorado. Even to this day, there's only a couple of, of window tinting companies that operate at a more business savvy or business focused level. Um, so that, that was an opportunity. Profit margins were good, all those kinds of things. What you just mentioned about uh, baby boomer exit, um, issues or, or not having good exit strategies really relates directly to our next 
investment, which was in retail floral. Um, in fact, um, in 2006, there were 25,000 independent retail florists, almost all owned by baby boomers, wow. almost all without exit strategies. I think it's 10,000 today. We've lost 15,000 retail florists. Is that because they just went out of business, closed up shop? Yeah, most of them. Wow. Um, it's, and that is, that is the, the primary reason that we ended up kind of diving into retail florals. We started seeing this happen. I mean, that's, that was around even when we bought our first flower shop and, um, and it's happening right now. We, in fact, I just bought a flower shop on July 1st of, of 2022 and that exact thing was happening. And how many Four shops yet? We have four flower shops, yeah. We we divested one of them in 2019 because the location, the the geography didn't fit our overall model, yep. but we're we're currently back up to four. Yeah, so you whenever we talk business, I always ask you like, why that business? Yeah. And you always say good profit margins. What's a good profit margin to you? Yeah, um on the retail side of things, we're seeing uh, especially in retail floor, we're seeing a 65% gross profit margin. Um, which erodes quickly with the increase of labor and, and sure. commercial uh, <laughs> real estate costs. Sure. But um, we felt like we could manage everything below that that gross profit. Uh, or I'm sorry, yeah, gross profit, cost of goods line better than other people. And again, sole proprietor operator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of these people are the florists, and they're also doing the bookkeeping yep. and all that stuff. So I, I would say. Um, uh, of the 10,000 remaining, uh, probably 9,500 of them are that way. <laughs> and I'm not sh- there's one or two other non-owner-operated flower shops in the state of Colorado. So, and you, you bought a few different brands of floral shops, and obviously the one you just bought is probably under a different brand as well. Are you rebranding them? Do you keep the brand? What's the game plan there and why? Yeah, so we bought two flower shops independently in 2000, I want to say 12 and 13 approximately 12 and 13. They were two separate brands. We left them separate and our plan was to operate them separately. They were in two different markets. Um, in 2014, Spiro Palmer, Palmer Flowers and Fort Collins approached us about a merger and a leverage buyout that did happen in 2015, which caused us to relook at the branding strategy. And we have everything rebranded as Palmer Flowers except for one, uh, Paul Wood Florist in Old Town Fort Collins. It's the oldest retailer in Old Town Fort Collins. It was founded in 1932. It has a cult following. Special. Yeah, it is a little, it's kind of, it's a novelty brand. Yeah, it's like tearing down an old historic building instead right. of like redoing it. That's amazing. So walk me through leveraged merger, leveraged buyout. Yeah. What's that mean to the listener? Yeah, um, it was a complicated transaction. So was it, I, that was your first one, right? Yes, first, first, and only that that I've done. Um, so, what happened was I owned two flower shops. Spiro Palmer owned two, two flower shops. He wanted out. Um, he had a few partners. They were employee partners, uh, employee owners, um, and so we to to make this to make it work. We had to merge the two companies dilute his employee owner's ownership, dilute my ownership, which was a hundred percent at the time we had to agree on, on what that looked like. Mm. And then leverage buyout using debt to 
buy him out of the remaining operation. So we bought him out, rolled the two companies into one, reallocated everyone's ownership. And it was that a typical baby boomer, I want to exit out, or what was his reason for wanting to? Spiro's not a typical baby boomer, but he's a, but that was the ultimate reason for it. If if you talk to him, he had a five-year exit strategy in 2007, you know, that, that lasted 10 years, basically. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people's business strategies right. got extended. So, so, how, so how did he pick you guys then? What, did you guys already have a relationship, or were you kicking his ass? <laughs> it's a funny story, and he didn't tell me it until years later. <laughs> um, he, he had his right-hand man, Michelle Adams, who still operates the business with us today, call me and set up a meeting. And I'd heard his name, never met him. Uh, we had lunch in, in Loveland and he was sizing me up for competition. He was going to open a flower shop next door to us. Oh, wow. Directly um, next door? Uh, basically. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, but by the end of the meeting, I think he saw that, that we were young, energized business people um, in an industry completely void of that. And, um, it, that we were then on top of that it, over the the next few months you learned that our morals aligned which is super super crucial in uh seceding somebody like him um and he decided that we were his retirement plan and um, the reason i bring up the morals i i think it's unbelievably important when you're selecting partners it's it's something i've learned over the one, one of the most key things i've learned over the past 5 years is if i'm partnering with somebody their morals must align with my morals. And that is maybe the most important piece. I put myself in his shoes. His name is on the building. He's operating businesses. Yeah. Uh, they have a property management company, a big real estate. He's a seller in the community. Yep. If my morals didn't align with his, I could quickly erode his brand with ha having nothing to do with him. And similarly, put yourself in my shoes. I'm, I'm taking over this. I was, we were 27 years old. We were going from 20 employees to a hundred employees overnight. Um, it, it was a big leap of faith for us to, you know, feel like there was a way to make this work. Yeah. And if I have somebody that I couldn't have this, you know, positive relationship for the next five plus years, there's no way I would have, would have gone in on that. Cause he stayed on as the chair. Or president. Yep. Yeah. He was president for two years. Um, he's still technically on our board. He doesn't show up to the board meetings very often. He's usually in Greece. At this point. Greece hanging with his grandkids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He deserves it. Yeah. yeah. So he, um, but he can, he consults with me on a, like a quarterly basis. So that's amazing, man. What was that transition going from, <laughs> Hyperspeed, 20 to 100. What did that first year look like? And what were some of those pain points that you guys didn't expect, ran into? Yeah. Um, so the, the the first pain point was definitely – he had employee owners. So he had four employees that owned about 20% of the business at that time. Um, they were the people that helped him build the business. Um, they were still owners. And – they didn't trust me. <laughs> I was I was 27. Most of them have been in the industry longer than I'd been alive. You can't even put a bouquet together. You know? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. So I I was the owner of this and financially responsible for this organization. Right. And I had to spend that whole first year proving to these people that I was capable. Mm -hmm. That was really difficult, hard to understand. 
Um, then also we look at, at transitioning. I, they were tech savvy enough as about as tech savvy as a boomer business is, but nowhere near what we needed. And so coming in and uh, updating systems day after day, it was a much harder than I thought. Get, you know, it, to me, it was obvious that we needed to move from this system to that system. Right. Getting a hundred people to buy into that when you're the new guy on the block is just because you're the owner does not yes. doesn't mean that they're going to execute with that yeah. new system. So I didn't project that at all. It, again, had to really get people to trust me. Yeah. At the end of the day, had to get better at implementing the new systems, not just, oh, I set it up, I know it works, use it, you yeah. know? Um, it's a lot more difficult than I thought, but, and we've used those skills that we learned in that first couple of years, even today. It's awesome. There's a book I read that changed my life just on uh, how to tackle that. You ever read the book, Speed of Trust? No. Stephen Covey book, so obviously it's like yep. aces, right? For sure. But uh, he says, trust is built on the back of integrity, intent, capability, and results, right? So nobody really knows your results. They just know that like, Hey, this is what's worked. They don't right. know you're capable. So you got to win them over with integrity and intent, you know, For sure. that just takes time. That's a relationship. There's no way around that. And he, he actually uses a story of a couple takeovers that they went through and he experienced the same exact thing. So awesome. uh, how do you, how did you build relationships with those people in order to win them over? Yeah. Um, I, I, I found myself, there's a lot of tactics, right? Meeting with them one-on-one, -on -one, having regular check-ins, all the, all those. That's talking slow, points. man. It's a hundred people. Yeah. But at the end of the day, uh, explaining the why, um, became, it's still today is my mantra. I, I, even if you don't necessarily want to know if I project that there could be some angst or some concern as to something I'm asking you to do, I give you the entire why transplant transparently. And I think people then become trusting and at least understand that I'm thoughtful, whether they, you know, you just wake up this morning, right? this is what we're doing. Right. So I think that's super crucial. Take the time to explain the why to people. What's been your, and let's, we can really focus on the floral business because it's probably the, the largest for sure. Um, has the most employees, right? Yeah. What's been your biggest failure as an entrepreneur, as a leader, growing the business, all those things? Yeah. Um, there's two that really come to mind. One, so we did this act, we did this merger and leverage buyout. Um, our plan was to explain, expand the employee ownership base to have an employee owner in each of our stores and in each of our key departments, which that is still, you know, our model and works very, very well. I was very hasty to make those decisions as to who should come on with me as a partner. And so I brought a couple people on, um, like immediately, right? Our, our store needs, this is our model. We have to execute it. I must execute it today. I need to deliver the results to these people who are you looking. show them that I'm a man of my word. Exactly. So we brought a couple people on that didn't work out. And, um, for a variety of reasons, moral, uh, alignment is, um, you know, performance, those types of things. And that set me back so far having people's trust that I knew what I was doing when I was bringing these new crucial people on. So I, it has caused me to really analyze our process as to how we partner with people. And, um, I, I've already said a few of the things that I, I really value there, but, um, 
I, that was, it was a huge failure. And, and I could just see these people that I'm working to gain their trust and just getting Why'd knocked. Why'd you bring that person? I know. Fold, yeah. What do you mean they're leaving? These other people have been here 30 years who we're working with and you convinced us to bring this person in and they're leaving in a year, you know, that kind of a thing. So that was, that was a big failure of ours. Um, Another one that really comes to mind is price adjustments. Um, We've been really slow to address our pricing models and um, we, we worked on this concept of, of, well, we can only charge so much because people will only pay so much for this product and then struggle margin wise. Right. Right. Then everything else is going up. Margin goes down, 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 down. And 65 starts to squeeze real tight. Exactly. So, um, I I think people, your pricing uh, model and just regularly addressing that, that it has to work for you first. Right. You know, you have to be able to, to be successful within that pricing model. I waited years to make, correct and appropriate adjustments to our pricing model. I don't know how much opportunity we gave away over those years. And I won't do that again. Was beyond just thinking that the customers wouldn't buy it. Was there some other limiting beliefs that were keeping you from making that decision? Um, there is always a concern of our salespeople selling out of their own pocketbooks. Yeah. You know, I don't care what it is, whether it's tent or, or uh, flowers, right. There, there's, and we can train on it. We do actively train on it, but there's still that tendency to belief, man. Yeah. Belief in the value of what you're offering is the hardest thing to overcome for a salesperson. For sure, we spend a long time thinking about flowers as a cash transaction out of necessity, and we've spent a lot more time um, culturally focusing on the value that our product delivers in our community and that it's not just, Oh, it's a birthday. Fine. I can't think of anything else. So I'll send flowers. It's that we're meeting these people at the most crucial times in their life, anniversaries, deaths, weddings, literally every single arrangement we send is meeting somebody out at likely one of the most important times of their life. And talking about that actively setting a culture around that has been super crucial. Mm, that's so good, dude. Um, I want to dive in on culture because it's something that we don't always get to talk about. Right. You know, when you have a hundred employees, um, culture is a big thing, man. Yeah. People got to be bought into the mission and the vision. How do you, how do you keep that alive? And how do you train it, coach it, teach it? Do you use that as a guidebook to hire and fire people? What does that look like? Yeah. So in fact, that's a good point. If you want to talk about failures, we just ignored it for probably the first, (laughs) you know, four years of post merger. And we found ourselves in just an awful situation. Just nobody wanted to come to work. And I don't know if there's a worse feeling as an entrepreneur than having a business that your employees don't want to come to work at. So, um, Danielle and I and the rest of our leadership said, okay, this is going to be really painful, but we better start, uh, being very intentional in addressing this on a daily hourly basis. We started with a blind survey. You want to have your, your guts yeah, pulled up. Done those before. <laughs> so, but we garnered so much from it and, then we spent year a year implementing all these things. So people said that they wanted to hear the plan for the business more directly from us. Great, let's put these these 
uh, systems in place where we can regularly communicate. Whatever the feedback was, if it was reasonable and we we saw positive growth from it, um, we we implemented it. So we got to this really leading into leading into COVID, we got to this really positive place from a cultural perspective. But it also took probably half of my time and yeah. about a third of my wife's time. And that was not positive for the organization in any way, shape, or form. Not that it's not important. It is very important, but we have other responsibilities. So we started looking at how do we create some systems and, um, and make this not a thing that we have to lead, the thing that is just a part of the people. we are. Yep. So we talk super actively about our culture. Um, about how we want to be empathetic. We want to consider the business, but frankly, we're considering the people within our team more frequently than we're considering the business. And that's easy to say in the positive decision points, much more difficult to to implement in the difficult decision points. But I've taken that on as that's my responsibility. When we're talking about somebody who maybe needs to be terminated, I stop the meeting and say, okay, you as a group – Talk to me about what's right for this person. We've already talked about what's right for the business. Tell me about what's right for the for the person on the other side of this. And now I don't have to say that. I don't have to stop the meetings anymore. They, they we just talk about that over and over again. Um, yeah, sometimes you got a great person who's just sitting in the wrong seat. Right. Right. Like, hasn't been heard. Hasn't been. Maybe they need support outside of what's normal for a for a, an organization. I don't have to do what's normal for an organization. Why don't I treat them like a real person? (laughs) So we brought that all culminated at the beginning of this year. We brought on a cultural coordinator. um, Oh, that's great. Somebody just wakes up and goes to sleep thinking about culture. It's it's awesome. (laughs) It has been, and she, she aligns very, we were, had to be very, very clear with, we weren't looking for somebody to smack people over the head with a handbook, like the normal HR person. Yeah. Or just put fancy quotes on the wall. Yeah. We want somebody to be empathetic to the, to the people within our organization to help us unpack and create plans and, help with those challenging situations. And it has been life-changing. It was an investment. Don't get me wrong, but it has been life-changing for us. I know those are those like intangible things that you can't like plug into a spreadsheet. Right. Like, yeah, we're going to spend this much and we're going to see this much return on that. You know, you have to have to understand that if I can just get like five, 10% more production out of each individual, that's what that equates to the business. And it's ethereal. It's intangible. What it's looked like for us is we have this, young talent base that we've never had before. And they're all just itching for promotions and wanting to be further invested into the business, which for a passion based retail business, that's the sweet spot. So it's, it's been really awesome for us. That's amazing. So your, um, employee owned business, Mm -hmm. is that something that, uh, is like a carrot that people can go and grow into and get equity into the company? Is are you guys an, an ESOP? Is that the term? We are not an ESOP. We are a, so an ESOP is, is a little bit more retirement focused. Um, um, and has a lot of tax advantages for exits. Um, we are a stock ownership, um, LLC, uh, that's a little bit more operationally focused. Um, our partners vote on acquisitions, divestments, all those kinds of things, hiring our HR cultural coordinator. Um, so we um, target people who align with our our mission and vision. Um, 
who grow into key roles in the organization. And um, if, if they want to make the commitments that's required, they get equity ownership and a seat at the table for making decisions. Um, as I said, I've learned to be a little more cautious or, right. or selective. Not that that's slower. It's just more selective. Um, but well, you you get clearer on what it is or the things that you're actually looking for. Yep. Know? So we end almost all, if not all, of our partner meetings with a discussion. Have you noticed anyone who fits who would oh. fit this team? Let's talk about them. Now we have a pretty defined process that we put people through to make sure that they they fit well. Um, and so it, it's now we have a group of nine people that own and operate the organization. We're looking at two to three more for this year, which we haven't brought anyone on since COVID. It was just a little bit more, more difficult to do that. So that's the inner circle. Mm-hmm. Um, Operates I, like a board. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And how do you leverage them? I, I just wrote a post about this the other day. Just it's really easy as the CEO to build a room full of uh, yes men, right? right? An echo chamber, right? So how do you avoid that? How do you yeah. prevent that from being the case? Because generally, you're a very smart cat with great vision, um, but you know, you, sometimes you're you're biased, right? For sure. And so, how do you avoid that? And how does that team interact? I, so I think that question is crucial at all levels of organization. Sure. Is how can people disagree with you and have different opinions? Um, so it's it's really easy to isolate into that situation. We just had, we, we just, like I said, closed on a flower shop acquisition um, that we'd been evaluating through the first half of the year. And we had one member of our partnership team who disagreed. And um, uh, I so what, what I tried to do is be extremely intentional with giving them a platform for disagreement for acknowledging their um, the value in their points and their perspectives, for um, just just really pushing them to speak up, even though it directly conflicted with what I was presenting. I I wanted not just them but everyone in that room to see to reconsider. Right? Yes, this is why we're having this discussion. Yeah. I could have just. We could have just written the check and, and yeah, done it. I mean, not asked any of you. <laughs> right. The discussion is to have alternative points of view. So um, I, I think I think you have to intentionally give space for people to disagree with you. Yep. It takes a long time and for them to have a lot of trust in you to disagree right. with you. But then that's the opportunity. And it's like, great. This is awesome. Let's talk through it. If anyone else shares their opinion, Please bring it up. You know, let's let's just foster that multiple opinions in the same room. Yeah, uh, it is our responsibility as leaders to just constantly open the door and just say, hey, give it to me. Are we living up? Yep. Are we doing this? Sometimes I'll get messages from employees, and I'm not sure are they, are they communicating that these are things that we do, right. or are they communicating these are things that we should do, right? right? For sure. Like it's a, it's a snapshot of some other business person that said this. So I'll just write back like, are we living up to with this? Yeah. And if they say, yes, great. If not, then tell me that's me opening the door and saying, Hey, tell me if we're screwing up. For know? sure. I think one thing that helped in this is Danielle and I disagreed on a big decision a couple of years ago and she's on that team and yep. she's uh, encouraged obviously to, to voice her opinion. I think it was good for everyone to see. In fact, I think we ended up on her side of it at oh. the end of the day. <laughs> um, but it, it was good for people to see, Hey, 
doesn't, this is not a, a head nodding situation. We need to talk about this. That's the reason we're here. Um, other ways to leverage them is, um, but try and find passions that our partners have and create teams or committees or those types of things. Um, we made a very big change in, in one of our, uh, in our org chart basically uh, this time last year and created a committee off that team said, okay, there's a lot of varying opinions here. There's a lot to unpack. Let's create a committee of four people in this room. Here are your specific tasks. You need to meet four times in these next six weeks we're not asking you to make a decision. We're asking you so to remove that pressure, right? right. We're asking you to analyze the decision right. to come back to us with recommendations on that. So doing those types of tasks uh, or creating those types of opportunities for those people to have input. I mean, these aren't business people for the most part. They're right. full designers and right. whatever. So um, whatever their role is. So um, we're pulling them out of their comfort zone and giving them opportunities to grow and develop. That's so cool. It's so crucial, especially in an industry like that where, you know, it's generally not seen as like a long-term career path. Right. And you got to get those people bought into the big picture because it, it sounds like you're going on a terror. Like it doesn't sound like you just bought one. It sounds like you might be buying another one and you can't do that by yourself. Yeah, for sure. Oh yeah. We are so far beyond what Danielle and I could do. And that's such a, you have to, um, recognize that right as early as you can recognize that as better better off you are um but it's hard to create a organization and systems that don't rely on you entirely is that our ego yeah i i think i think so yeah um i've we have some workaholic managers in that organization um who really the 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 stores that they work in like Operate better without them there because <laughs> they're just like meddling. Yeah. No, I know you. Yeah. They're like so, always finding stuff to do. It's yeah. like, hey, Bill, we got this. Leave right. us alone. <laughs> the other piece to that is nobody. Um, there's no way to find somebody that cares about the business as much as the owner cares about it. Right. Um, it's one of the arguments for employee ownership model. Um, it's one of the reasons we do it that way. But at the end of the day, there isn't anyone in your organization or my organization who's not an owner that cares about it the same way that you do. 100%. How has being an entrepreneur changed the way that you view time and money? Yeah. What a, what a great, great discussion. Um, I, it's changed it 180 degrees for me. We grew up really um, uh, not poor, but but – with not, not with a lot. And so for me at the outset of all this, it was money driven. I need, I need money to have a a house. I don't need a mansion, but I need a nice house. I need a nice car. I need all those kinds of things that I didn't see as much growing up. And, um, that, that was it. And after, after 15 years or, or whatever it is as an entrepreneur, Money's important. I, I need a house and I need a car, right. but it takes such a far back seat to, to creating and innovating within an organization that adds value to our community. I, it's not even close for me. Um, that uh, goes a lot back to what we talked about. I realized in that time when I finally opened my eyes that my employees hated coming to work, oh. the 
providing a safe and positive environment for my employees to come to work to is way above money. You, you know, there, there's become these things that have moved so far above the value chain outside of, of sustenance. Again, you have to have sustenance time wise. Um, yeah, it, it's, I have a, I have one daughter. I have an eight year old daughter. Um, I worked, she was born when we were, uh, 27, I think it was. Um, I'd worked 60 plus hours a week every day for my 18th birthday until the day she was born. Um, I took, uh, uh, six months off entirely after the day she was born. And then I took, uh, two days a week off for the next four and four and a half years after that until she went to school, changed my perspective on being an entrepreneur, showed me that the business could operate without me, there. <laughs> you know, every, every I'm not uh, so moment. Great as I thought I was. Yeah. Right. Which was super valuable. And then it just got, it made me realize uh, and you look around your your peers, especially peers older than you, of, you know what, we only have these 18 precious years with these kiddos in our house. And um, we sh- that may be a little bit more important time-wise. I have the rest of my life to to work. And it, it has placed uh, a true work-life balance uh, into my life and my home, which changed my interaction with my family 100%. Would you have uh, done things a little different sooner if you could, looking back on it, like taking more time to breathe from the business and think about the business instead of always being so consumed with working in it or no? Um, I, I think every day I um, would like to work more on my business than in my business every single day. And, um, I actively try to, but there are things that you have to do within a business. I don't know. Our life was so fast and furious from 18 years old to 27 years old that it, it created who Danielle and I are as people. I don't know that I would change that. The, the speed at which we, we moved and invested and went, it was fun, man. I loved it. I love buying business. I, love I know. When, <laughs> when I hear you talk about it, you get geeked out. I, I love the analysis of, of, is it the right business? I love the financial piece of it. Um, I love, I really love working with the bankers and the banks and, and the challenges that they put in front of you. So I don't know that I would have changed that time all that much. What uh, let's say, let's cap it off on this because you have gotten several businesses now. And I think that that's a very reasonable way for our audience to make that transition. For sure. I'm not sure that everybody is made to build something from the ground up. Yeah. Um, so what advice would you have for people who are considering, you know, leaving their nine to five or their job or their corporate job, executive position and buying a business? What, what would you tell them that you wish you knew then that you know now? Yeah. Um, first of all, it's very doable and it's very rewarding. Um, yeah. Um, I, I think that that you should go after it as hard as you possibly can. Um, I think you need a a strong team around you, and that team looks a little bit different based on your situation and um, in the type of industry that you're going into. And when I say team, I don't necessarily mean like partners in the sense of, of partner investors. Again, for us, it was it was a banker. It was a, um, it was an insurance agent. You need those types of advisors around you, um, and 
for me, they gave me so much more confidence, right? Because that's scary. I don't care who you are, what you're doing, leaving some type of, of um, excellent job or, or any type of job, career, career or, right? Yeah. To, to move into to being completely reliant on yourself is scary, man. Um, I had this mentor say something that stuck with me uh, for 10 years or so. Um, oddly enough, he was my boss in the, uh, in the fortune 500 company, but he said, you know what? There is a false sense of security in employment. People weight employment as being so much more safe than being an entrepreneur. And it's categorically false. It's just not true. You can be fired. You can have be reorged down five chains. You can be required to move. There, there are so many risks that are different risks than are that come with entrepreneurship, but they're the same, if not worse at the end of the day. You don't have any control over it at the whim. So that helped me put that risk concept to bed a little bit. (laughs) Um, Not to bed entirely, but, but um, um, help me consider that. So have a good team around you and maybe don't, overweight your own security in your current position. If there's something out there that speaks to you and that fits well for your situation, it may not be as risky as you think. You can always go get a job. Right. That's right. Being an entrepreneur doesn't make you less, it doesn't make your skills less marketable in an employment environment. I, I think they make it significantly more marketable. hundred percent. Awesome. Well, how do people connect with you? How do they follow up and see what you're up to these days? What social platforms do you hang out yeah, on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, um, um, Tim Jordan CO on on Instagram. Um, yeah, we we always have stuff pumping out content wise through Palmer Flowers. It usually has a lot of me involved in it. Um, press releases. If if um, one thing I'll I'll um, I'll throw out there is um, the employment uh, Colorado uh, employment office did a doc a PBS documentary on Palmer flowers cool. um, last year that talks about our, uh, our uh, employee ownership model and the conversion to it. And it's super well done. Not, not speaking a little self-servingly, but it's out there on YouTube, just Palmer flowers, employee ownership. You could see our whole story on, on there and it's really valuable. Cool. So, uh, can we get that from you or should we go look it up or how? I, I can, I can get that too. Okay. We'll yeah. put it in the show notes yep, so everybody yep. can link right to it. For sure. Uh, last question. When are you going to start writing content on business? Cause you got a savvy business brain that people need to hear about. I don't, I don't know if, uh, if the, <laughs> I don't know if I'm, uh, uh, uh communications, uh, driven enough to do that, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just leverage this content there you go. and it'll be the first piece. And I appreciate you a ton. Thanks for imparting your wisdom on us and the audience and, I can't wait to have you back for the next one. Awesome, man. I appreciate being here. Always fun talking with you, Samson. Thanks, brother.